This is Africa Digest. It's 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you from Johannesburg and on frequency 15235 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to West Africa. My name is Spumila Lezondi and I'm with Asanda Mataonya, Newesani Matebula and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. Three people were injured in violent clashes in the Burundi capital, Bujumbura. The UN's refugee agency says excess rains have exacerbated a cholera outbreak at the world's largest site for displaced people in Kenya. But let's get the news from Asanda Mazaunyane first. Good evening. Burundi's government will not take part in peace talks with the opposition scheduled for Wednesday, according to a senior official. This casts fresh doubt on efforts to end months of violence. The talks in neighboring Tanzania were announced last month as part of regional efforts to resolve a crisis triggered by President Pierre Nkurunziza's decision to run for a third term in office, a move opponents said broke the constitution. However, Permanent Secretary in Burundi's Foreign Affairs Ministry, Joseph Mugumaromba, now says that no dialogue on Wednesday nor on January 16 will take place, citing a lack of consensus on the dates as the reason. South Africa's ruling ANC party has laid charges of criminal injuria against a number of South Africans who have made racist remarks on social media. They include prominent economist Chris Hart and former estate agent Penny Sparrow, as well as fitness enthusiast Justin van Furen. Sparrow has been suspended by the opposition Democratic Alliance as a party member and hired by the Standard Bank, his employer. Amos Pajo reports. The ruling party believes that given the large risk of social media, the population of racist comments has potential to cause irreparable harm to the dignity and reputation of individuals and social groups. It's a posting of such comments is not only in clear violation of the user policies of the respective social media platforms, but violates the human rights of those as whom they are directed to, namely black South Africans. The ANC has emphasized that the vulgar views of the few white South Africans should not serve to create the impression that most white South Africans are racist. The ruling party has also called on all South Africans using social media platforms to do so wisely. Algeria's government has unveiled draft constitutional reforms, including a two-term presidency limit, an obligatory consultation with parliament to name prime ministers, and making local Amazigh a official language. Algerian President Abdelaziz Bouteflika has promised a package of amendments to strengthen democracy in the North African state, which has seen mostly or which has been governed mostly by the ruling FLN party and the military since independence in 1962. 
The proposed reforms will go for approval this month before Parliament, before being adopted in the Constitution. Malawi Law Society has condemned Ken Sonda, who is the spokesperson for the former People's Party, for his recent remarks on homosexuality. Sonda demanded that gays be killed after the country's Minister of Justice, Samuel Tembenu, put a temporary prohibition on anti-homosexual laws. Msonda made headlines last week when he described homosexuals as being worse than dogs on his Facebook timeline. Now Msonda's comments have angered Malawi Law Society, who labeled Msonda's remarks as contemptible, irresponsible, and bordering on hate speech. The Law Society's president, John Suzibanda, says they have referred Msonda's Facebook post to the Malawi Human Rights Commission and Malawi Police Service. The number of migrants found washed up on Turkey's Aegean coast has now increased to 12, with at least three of them being children. The bodies were found after their boat capsized as they tried to reach the Greek island of Lesbos. The Turkish Coast Guard discovered the bodies in the district of Ayvalik on Tuesday morning. The Coast Guard is continuing with rescue efforts. Last year, a million migrants reached Europe. For Channel Africa News, I am Asanda Matsaunyan. Thank you very much, Asanda. It's 17.05 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Three people were injured on Monday in violent clashes in the Burundian capital, marked by heavy gunshots and bombshells that could be heard in some parts of Bujumbura. A police spokesperson says one suspect was apprehended and an unexploded bomb seized. As he lauded the action of security forces in ensuring security in the capital over the Christmas and New Year festive period, he conceded, however, that several incidents had claimed lives of people across the country. From Bujumbura, he has been at Bagonkira. Heavy gunshots and bombshells could be heard on Monday morning in the capital Bujumbura. Three people were injured. Two of them sustained injuries as two bombs were prepared by grenade launchers around 11.30 in Buiza Zone by criminals who were riding a motorcycle not far from the office of the municipality of Bujumbura. Sean Kurikie, police spokesman, held a press conference recognizing the incidents which created panic among residents of Bujumbura. He said the two persons injured were women and one was due to undergo surgery to amputate her leg. Sean Kurikie said security forces intervened and managed to seize an unexploded bomb and apprehended one suspect who is under interrogation. As investigations are already on so as to nab those criminals and bring them to justice. The third person was injured early in the southern neighborhood of Musaga following a grenade around 9 a.m. as said by Pian Kurikia. He acknowledged two other grenades exploded in the same locality of Musaga without causing damages as another one detonated at locality known as Otrako without causing any damage. Apart from the Monday events, Pian Kurikia lauded security forces for keeping the peace due during the just-concluded festive season, despite rumors that these celebrations would not take place based on the December 11th terrorist attacks, major events which traditionally mark this period, such as crusades, night prayers, dancing parties, outings to public places such as beaches, markets, shops, bus stations, churches, pubs and other leisure areas were secured and were heard in all tranquility across the country. In accordance with the security measures taken and announced by the government of the eve of 
the celebration of Christmas and New Year 2016, the security forces have taken relevant decisions that ensured the safety of the celebrations, which were held without major security incidents over the world territory of the Republic of Burundi, despite remorse that had prevailed over the inability of the normal course of the, these festivals. Rumors reinforced by the attacks on 11 December 2015 on three military camps. Major events that traditionally mark this period as crusades, prayer vigils, dances, outings to public places such as beaches, markets, churches, bars and other places of fun were secured and took place in peace throughout the country. The police spokesman, however, considered that security incidents were reported in Bujumbura during the holidays, particularly in Rohero, Motakura, Tibitoke, Buyanzi and Musaganebahodes. He also revealed violent incidents across the country, mentioning a policeman who killed a mother and her baby in the eastern province of Ruyigi, and two suspected thieves beaten to death by angry residents in northern Burundi. According to him, 25 people lost their lives during Christmas and New Year celebrations. 14 died in road accidents. He said investigations are underway of our recorded incidents calling Burundians to remain vigilant. Nevertheless, the following cases of insecurity occurred. Ten grenades explosions in Bujumbura mayorship at Rohero, Mutakura, Chibitoke, Buyenzi and Musaga. A policeman who shot a, a, a mother and her child after an escape of a prisoner in Ruigi province. Two thieves killed by the population in the north of the country. All these cases of insecurity observed in the country have caused the following damages. 25 people died among whom 14 by road accidents. 64 injured among whom 51 by road accidents. Also, the following weapons and war effects have been seized or recovered during this period. 32 Kalashnikov rifles, 1 RP G7 rifle, two handguns, pistols, one R4 gun, one Uzi rifle, 28 grenades, 29 mortar bombs, and 4,333 cartridges. For those cases of insecurity, the Ministry of Public Security informs the public that each case was followed by a careful investigation that will bring perpetrators to justice. The ministry asked the population to remain vigilant and redouble effort in working to prevent all cases of insecurity in general and terrorism in particular. Burundi, especially the capital Bujumbura, has been shaken by violence that was triggered by President Kurunziza's decision to pursue the third term earlier last year. Hundreds have been killed and over 220,000 are languishing in refugee camps in neighboring countries. The government of Burundi has rejected the African Union proposal to deploy troops in Burundi to stop the deadly violence. Meanwhile, Burundian political stakeholders are due to meet in the Tanzanian northern town of Arusha for an inter-Burundian dialogue in an international effort to end the crisis, which is still claiming lives since April 26th last year. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. The new head of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, has started work at the agency's headquarters in Geneva in Switzerland. Grandi succeeds Antonio Guterres, who's more than 10 years in office ended last week. Guterres reflects on one of the biggest challenges of his tenure this past year's refugee crisis. Of course, we have witnessed the dramatic acceleration of displacement uh, in the last few years. Uh, 
from 2010 to 2015. The number of people displaced by conflict every day has multiplied by four, which means that we are having more and more conflicts and more and more people being forced to flee. And the old conflicts remain and we don't find solutions for people. Ten years ago, we were hoping one million people go back home every year in safety and dignity. Last year, only 124,000. So it is true that there has been progressive aggravation of uh, displacement and of the suffering of people because of displacement. But that has happened, I would say, without much impact in the global public opinion or uh, in the global political discussions. Uh, But all of a sudden, uh, we had uh, uh, the refugee issues in the very center of the international debate. And the reason, unfortunately, was because the refugees came to the developed world, which means people were more concerned with the developed world than with the refugees themselves. There was quite a citizen movement in Europe that was actually recognizing the refugees as people who were fleeing the terrorists, not terrorists themselves. Does this give you hope? Are you concerned that the other side, the fear in that battle for values, is overtaking the compassion? One of the things that was clear is that Europe was totally disorganized totally divided. And because of that, uh, Europe was not able to put its act together. And so instead of having a proper reception, proper screening, and then distribution of the refugees orderly, uh, moving by plane from the point of entry to the different countries receiving them, what we had was a crowd of thousands of people every day moving through the Balkans in a total chaos. And when people at home in a village or a small town anywhere in Europe would see the news, they would always see this crowd coming and the idea that started, well, they are coming, nobody's in charge, there is total lack of control. They might be coming to my house, to my community, to uh, Europe is being invaded. This was the message that was conveyed. And this, of course, triggered some fears, some concerns. And I think the way to answer that is first to properly address the root causes of the problem, but also to organize the refugee movement in Europe, to have adequate reception capacity at entry point, to have adequate security checks and screening at entry point, uh, uh, to be able to welcome people and to um, uh, receive people when they come to Europe, and then using all uh, European countries to distribute them in a way that would not be problematic. We are talking about, uh, as you mentioned, one million people that came to Europe. That is uh, uh, less than two refugees per 1,000 Europeans. Now, in Lebanon, we have one refugee for each three Lebanese. That demonstrates that the problem would be perfectly manageable if it was managed. But unfortunately, Europe was totally divided, unable to put its act together, and so the control of the movement was not by the European authorities, but by the smugglers and the traffickers. And this is, of course, absolutely regrettable, and this helped to trigger those reactions of fear or or anxiety in many European societies. Antonio Guterres is the former head of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and he was in conversation with UN Radio's Melissa Fleming. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi.
My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 1716 Central African Time. You can find us on social media. On Twitter, we are on Channel Africa 1. It's Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. You're still listening to Africa Digest. The Kenyan government has reopened Garissa University in the northern parts of the country, where 148 students were killed by Somalia's Al-Shabaab terrorists a year ago. Already, the university's registrar has confirmed that more than 200 members of staff have reported for work pending the arrival of students before the end of the week. And in a move aimed at preventing future terrorist attacks, the government has heightened security by constructing a police post at the university's compound, James Manula. The main gate at Garissa University College campus reopened on Monday, nine months after being targeted by the Somali Islamist group Al-Shabaab. The university registrar Isaac Mohamed Noor confirmed that more than 200 members of staff reported for work. Noor said students are expected to report for classes beginning next week. Speaking at the university shortly after it reopened, Principal Professor Ahmed Wafa said heavy security measures have been put in place at the university campus. We have put our police post, there are about 25 police officers, and we hope that will be tight enough to help us secure this university. We also plan to put a perimeter wall. Garissa University is located in Kenya's remote northeastern region on the border with Somalia. Al-Shabaab militants raided the campus in April last year and gunned down people they identified as Christians. The 15-hour siege ended with the security forces killing the four attackers. Shortly after the attack that claimed the lives of 148 students, the 700 surviving students were readmitted at Moy University, west of the capital Nairobi, to complete their courses. Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto underscored the importance of stepping up security at the university and made this promise. As government, we are going to make sure that all these facilities that have been put at the disposal of the children of Kenya for there to be learning at the university level in this institution will continue. We will make sure that there is adequate personnel to man and to guarantee the security of uh, the students, the community, the teaching staff and this uh, town and county. We are not willing, we are not prepared to cede an inch of Kenya to criminals or terrorists. We will defend every inch of Kenyan soil. The attack at Garissa University was the worst in Kenya since Al-Qaeda-linked terrorists blew up the United States Embassy in Nairobi, killing more than 200 people. The Islamists are targeting Kenya over the presence of its peacekeepers in neighboring Somalia. 
The Kenya government therefore embarked on the construction of a security wall along its 700-kilometer border with the neighboring Somalia with the hope of keeping the militants away. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Let's go to Kenya now, where the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, says a culmination of issues, including excess rains, has exacerbated a cholera outbreak at the world's largest site for displaced people. More than 1,000 people have fallen sick due to cholera at the Dadaab complex in Kenya, which hosts nearly 350,000 refugees and asylum seekers, the majority of them from Somalia. The waterborne bacterial illness is blamed for at least 10 deaths since November last year. Priscilla Lecomte is um, with UN Radio and she spoke to Osman Yusuf Ahmed. We have 1,140 cases. This is not exactly the number of uh, positive cholera cases, but if one or two cholera cases are discovered, then everybody who comes up with vomiting and diarrhea is a cholera case. We don't need even to take for laboratory analysis. Across the five camps, we have 10 deaths, uh, around six in the community in the, within the camps, which uh, they have not brought to the uh, hospitals, and then maybe four severe cases that were brought to the CPCs, the cholera treatment centers. Is it the first time that uh, you experience a cholera outbreak in the DAP camp? No, it's not the first time. In 2011, it was there, 2013, it was there, 2014. July it was there. But these are cases of one or two, and we used to stop it immediately, immediately. This time is a bit different because it's taking us by, from 18th of November, this is the seventh week we're struggling with it because of the above average rainfall that were there. There's more water that has been captured from rainfall runoff, and then uh, children, because the schools have just closed in December, children going to swim there looking for some pleasure, places to let off uh, their uh, excessive energies. So the first case was a case of a boy who was swimming in those water pools, and uh, that was discovered on 18th of November. And then uh, also there are around 22 counties out of the 47 counties in the country that were affected by cholera. Our neighboring county, which is around uh, three kilometers from the uh, Gahle camp, has been affected by cholera for the sixth month, and the people have been dying on, of, of that disease. Now what is the UNHCR doing in the DAP camp to yes. control yes. the disease? We are distributing soap, something to the tune of around 60 tons have already been distributed. We are spraying all across the, the camp with the chlorine to disinfect the latrines, the poor water ponds, the households, everything. We have now attained around 108% spraying across the camp. So the spraying is ongoing. Then there is cholera-affected families. We go there, we find out what is the major cause in the household, what is happening, why are these guys uh, getting cholera in, in their homes and not other neighboring families. So we are doing targeted approach for spraying, soap distribution, and uh, other hygiene uh, messaging. We have uh, hourly hygiene promotion messages across the three FM radios that are surrounding the camps. What is the key to prevent cholera? The most important thing is hygiene promotion, uh, so that hand washing at critical to critical time. You see, cholera is a fecal oral transmission. We take food from the mouth and goes from uh, the other side of the, the human uh, intestine. But if that now comes back to the mouth again, that is how cholera is. We are trying to tell them to wash hands. All the partners are on board, UNICEF is on board, UNHCR, uh, Minister of Health and Kenya government, the host community leaders, the religious leaders, all those people have been mobilized. We are not leaving anything to chance. 
That is United Nations Refugee Agency's representative in Kenya, Osman Yusuf Ahmed, speaking to you and radio's Priscilla Leconte. The resumption of government business yesterday following the Christmas break was marred by violent attacks on teachers in Zimbabwe's capital, Harare. Members of the Rural Teachers Union of Zimbabwe took to the streets in protest of unpaid bonuses, delayed wage payment, as well as arrests and assaults of their members by police over the Christmas break. As a result... Scores of teachers affiliated with the RTUZ were arrested and detained by the Harare police. This is the second time in a week that rural-based teachers have clashed with the authorities over unpaid bonuses and delayed payment of salaries in Zimbabwe. More from our correspondent, Simon Machema. He's in Harare. Zimbabwe Human Rights Association, Zim Rights, an umbrella body of all human rights groups in Zimbabwe, has expressed concern over the continued unwarranted arrest of members of the Rural Teachers Union of Zimbabwe over unpaid bonuses. According to Zim Rights, a handful of teachers were on Monday arrested in the Zimbabwean capital, Arare, as they demanded explanations over the non-payment of bonuses. The teachers also demonstrated against poor working conditions, especially for the teachers working in the rural areas of the country. Zim Rights maintains that the arbitrary arrest of the peaceful protesters by police is a violation of the new constitution which guarantees the right to freely demonstrate and petition. The demonstration in Harare Monday came as a result of delayed payment of salaries, unexplained deductions relegating the rural teachers to poverty. Meanwhile, during the demonstrations in Harare, RTUZ made a wide call for the payment of other civil servants who include nurses and doctors who are yet to receive their December salaries. According to eyewitnesses near the parliament building in Arare, RTUZ President Obet Masaraure and RTUZ Secretary General Robson Chere and another activist were picked up by Zimbabwean police as they tried to petition the government through parliament. Zimrights Director O.K. Machisa condemned the arrest Monday. It, it, it is something which is very unfortunate and uh, we do not uh, think that uh, it is uh, very human to go to such an extent where rural teachers are arrested when they are trying to register their displeasure on uh, a move that the government has failed. It is provided for in the constitution that demonstrations that are peaceful are covered and are allowed in our country. And uh, I'm not very sure where these uh, police uh, people are getting uh, the powers from because the constitution is very clear that uh, we have a right to demonstrate. Machisa is worried Zimbabwean police are using force against poor citizens complaining of failure by the government to fulfill its mandate that of paying salaries and bonuses on time. And it is very sad that we have reached a stage where the people of Zimbabwe are in pain, are in agony, left, right, center. The teachers uh, were paid and unfortunately I'm told that uh, a certain figure was deducted without them being alerted that uh, a certain figure is going to be deducted from their salary. That alone is uh, quite unfortunate and you remember that every year teachers or civil servants get bonus. And uh, if you want to compare the salaries that they get uh, in, in, in the whole region, you see that uh, the teachers in Zimbabwe are getting almost nothing. And uh, it is very painful when world actually want to register that they are displeasure because these are the people that really suffer in the world. They they sacrifice quite a lot.
to go and teach our children in the rural areas where there is no electricity, where there are no buses, where there is no access maybe to health facilities, where there is no clean water. They are exposed to all lots of inhuman um, uh, treatment. And therefore, we think it is very unfortunate and it is very sad that uh, this group uh, has been arrested when they are trying to democratically exercise their rights. On the eve of the new year, police arrested three members of the RTUZ in Harare for resisting arrests. The three appeared in a Harare magistrate court and were remanded out of custody, although one of the members sustained serious injuries due to beatings inside the police cells. As a result, Zimbabweans are getting worried because more civil servants are threatening to demonstrate due to unpaid salaries and bonuses in December 2015. A cash-trapped government requires requires 100 million U.S. dollars every month for salaries, chewing up nearly 80% of the country's resources. Secretary General of the RTUZ, Robson Chere, explained just before the arrest on Monday. There was no clear charges as of today about why were they accused. But after the lawyer came, that's when they tried to build cases that they were resisting arrest. But the nature of the arrest, why they were being arrested, it wasn't clear. So they had to come up with charges for resisting arrest. And now they're saying partly they assaulted the police when they were about to be arrested for no charge. When they were in the custody, even on the way to the custody, they were beaten. They have sustained several injuries in the cartoons. They were stripped naked, mystified in corners, stripped naked the whole night and the whole day. To such an extent that when the lawyer who is representing them for, from the Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights, when he arrived, he was still naked and uh, mystified in corner again, was stripped in March. They were saying they want to baptize him so that he can reform. Mystified in corner was given access to go to the hospital after the lawyer insisted. And I think maybe the police officers were now afraid that he can die in their hands. If the evidence from the doctor shows that he sustained a fractured limb. Reporting for China. Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchema. It's time for news headlines. Here's Asanda Matsaonyane. Good afternoon. Burundi's government will not take part in peace talks with the opposition scheduled for Wednesday, according to a senior official. South Africa's ruling ANC party has laid charges of criminal injuria against a number of South Africans who have made racist remarks on social media. And Algeria's government has unveiled a draft constitutional reforms, including a two-term presidency limit, an obligatory consultation with parliament to name prime ministers, and making local Amazigh an official language. Your news headlines here on Channel Africa. It's 1731 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest with Ms. Pumelele Zondi. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African time this evening. 
Now, the number of fatalities on South African roads during the 2015-2016 festive season had already surpassed 500 by December the 20th. According to analysis by the Automobile Association of South Africa, this is despite the country's government embarking on numerous campaigns during this period to reduce the number of deaths on the roads and also clamp down on traffic offenders. To discuss this issue... We are joined on the line by Simon Zwane, who is the spokesperson for the Road Traffic Management Corporation. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Hello and thank you for the opportunity. Now, Simon, could you just tell us about some of the campaigns that you embarked on um, during the festive season? Well, our campaign actually starts long before the festive season. For instance, uh, in July, we were at July Handicap and ran a campaign during that long weekend, the weekend of the July handicap, together with law enforcement, and we saw no fatalities of that over that weekend. As much as, as many people uh, travelled from Gauteng to Durban for, for for the July handicap, so it was in preparation for the festive season. And later on, we were at the Makufe festival, so on the N1. South from Gauteng to Bloemfontein, interacting with motorists and all of that, and that weekend went off as well without any major incident. Uh, we have been interacting with some of the big uh, bus operators, speaking to their to their drivers about the importance of road safety, and I think that you 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 study to find that any bus that was involved in in graciously this festive season, despite the fact that people did go to Maria for their Christmas pilgrimage, that went off smoothly. So we have we've been doing this work throughout the year because we don't believe in a seasonal campaign. We are running a program that is run throughout the year, interacting with young people, interacting uh, with pub, pub, uh, public transport drivers, and interacting also bringing on board with a, a faith-based organization. And we have also now uh, <coughs> uh, actors and prominent soccer players who are part of our campaign, part of, of engaging society in a conversation around road safety. And that happens on a daily basis to all other platforms where we can meet and discuss with uh, young motorists. And we also talk to those uh, motorists that are already mature. So it, it, it's an ongoing program that we have. But what we then do in periods when there are peak traveling, there's peak traveling in the country, we also intensify our campaign, and we are able, we are on the roads, and we are also on radio programs such as the one you are having, trying to talk to to motorists about the importance of responsible driver behavior on the roads, and the importance of looking after their pedestrians and looking after uh, passengers in their vehicles. When you say um, without major incidents on some of your campaigns, what would you consider major incidents? A major incident would be 
a multiple car pileup involving four vehicles and there is a there is a fatality or an incident in which uh, there are three or more people who have died from one single uh, incident be it a single vehicle over over uh, a single vehicle rolling and killing all passengers two vehicles colliding and killing three or more people would consider that a major incident and an, an incident also involving vehicles that transport say chemicals on our road and they explode that would be considered a major incident and other incidents that involve may involve prominent members of society would be considered as, as major incidents but granted, you say that your campaigns are not seasonal, um, but you do look at the December period differently because you would get a lot of people traveling during that um, uh, that period. Uh, how would you say that you fed then, um, or people, or South Africans fed on the roads during that December period? Yeah, I think the important thing to, to bear in mind in all of that, in all of, of, of the things that we do, is that road safety is a joint responsibility. Uh, government needs to do its bit, but as, as individual motorists, members of a society, we also must do our bit because it affects the entire society. So this festive season, uh, as of last week, uh, Sunday, I think we had seen more than a thousand people have died on the roads and we understand that these would have been mostly young young people mostly young black males uh, novice drivers who are traveling in these vehicles with passengers uh, most of the time the vehicles are full uh, sometimes even overloaded and we understand that uh, it is private motor vehicles uh, that have been responsible for close to close to 50 percent of the of the incidents that we have had, and many of the incidents have involved pedestrians, which tells you that it did not happen on the national or provincial routes, because on those routes people were behaving though they saw that there was police visibility. Perhaps we didn't have as much visibility in the build-up areas, in the villages, in the townships. And, and, and that's an issue that we'd have to analyze going forward. Uh, after this festive season, we have to take stock of where we are. In fact, even every person who loves life, uh, who spends time on the road, would have to take stock when we have done our final analysis and released the final statistics about how they, they are behaving on the roads. We would have to look at what further measures we need to do, whether it's, it's appropriate to allow novice drivers to have passengers in their vehicles, an issue that we'll have to discuss. Uh, and come to a conclusion on whether the speed limits need to be reduced. Uh, there's already 
regulations that are out for, for comments in that regard. Would, uh, and we think that we need to bring those into operation as soon as possible. And there will be the demerit system where people who are negligent on the road will lose certain points and eventually maybe lose their driver's licenses. That's coming in April. Then we also need to look at the, uh, the entire uh, interaction with the justice system. We don't think that when traffic officers have done their work and have arrested someone who was speeding, traveling at 200 kilometers an hour, we don't think it's appropriate for the person to be released on a 800-round bail, for instance. We believe that that sends a wrong message, a message that says you can get away with speeding. So we would have to engage with the Justice Department on that, on those issues and also on the issues of drunk and driving. We think that it's taking far too long for the drunk and driving cases to be concluded, and that sends the wrong message as well uh, to people who are caught in, while driving under the influence of alcohol. So we would have to interact with them and interact with the Department of Health to ensure that the blood results can come quickly so that those matters can be concluded speedily. We will have to, to come to a conclusion about what kind of sentence is appropriate for people who are who, who are found guilty to have caused found guilty of reckless and negligent driving that has resulted in the death of some people? Uh, our view is that reckless and negligent yes. driving need to be reclassified as a Schedule Five offence, uh. where it will be difficult to get bail and there should be a minimum sentence of at least two years. Yes. Um, we do understand that there currently is a separate case that you probably are not dealing with of a South African um, who's accused of drunk driving and knocking over a person overseas um, in, in Scandinavia. Would you say that's the prob- that drunk driving is a massive problem in South Africa? And are South Africans listening to you on drunk driving campaigns? Drunk driving is, is, a, is a massive problem. Uh, not only on the roads, but affecting the health of our people in general. And I think that's why in government there is a discussion about banning alcohol advertising, because uh, people see the effect that it has on the young people in this country, uh, particularly. Are South Africans listening to you then on your campaigns? Because you have um, massive campaigns um, advising people not to drive drunk. But are they listening at all? Well, you know, changing attitudes and changing behavior takes time. It's not an overnight thing. Uh, I can challenge you to look at whether people are listening to messages, for instance, of embracing healthy lifestyles so that we don't have an explosion of communicable diseases such as diabetes, high blood pressure, and all of that. And look at how many of them are are getting inf- uh, infected with, with those chronic diseases every year. Uh, evidence will point to the fact that it takes time. It takes time. I challenge you also to look at uh, teenage pregnancy. Despite all the efforts that are put and pushing for that, teenage pregnancy still maintain, remains a problem. So is abuse of women. We have 16 days of accusing all the time, but the attitude of some men towards women is still an attitude that treats women as, 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 as objects.
those things they point uh, to the fact that it takes time for people to change their attitudes and take behavior, change behavior. So we shouldn't lose uh, lose lose faith and, and be discouraged. We should continue uh, and see whether we can how we strengthen those campaigns going forward. We have view that we need to educate. Yes. Um, uh, One thing that the education at schools maybe is part of the curriculum in schools, so that by the time they go to obtain a license, they're already right. uh, conscientized about road safety, for instance. All right, Simon, we are getting a bad line there in the end, but thank you very much for joining us, Simon Zwane. It's a pleasure, sir. Simon Zwane is a spokesperson for the Road Traffic Management Corporation in South Africa. Let's go to your news. Uh, let's go to economic news now. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good, good, good evening. Uh, the head of the International Monetary Fund endorsed uh, Nigeria's efforts to tackle corruption while saying the country needed to reduce its reliance on oil, sharp falls in the price of which have crippled its economy. Speaking after talks uh, with President Mohamed Buhari, IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde also said she was not in Nigeria to negotiate a loan. Lagarde says she and Buhari discussed uh, the challenges posed by the falling oil price and the need for fiscal discipline. And Kenya's telecoms regulator accused the government of curbing uh, the watchdog's ability to manage competition in the sector by recently changing the law. It says the move could discourage investments. Smaller operators in Kenya's telecom sector claim unfair competition, saying Safaricom, the biggest operator, is too dominant. The amendments have already been signed into law by President Uhuru Kenyatta. South Africa's Northern Cape province has been named as one of the top 10 regions to visit in the world by leading travel and reference publisher Rath Guides. The province was named as the sixth best region to visit behind only Alaska in the U.S., Gujarat in India, Tasmania in Australia, Quebec in Canada, and Tohoku 
in Japan. The Northern Cape Tourism Authority CEO Sharon Lewis says the recognition comes after years of hard work and rebranding the province as the province for extreme adventure. Zimbabwe plans uh, to import up to 700,000 tons of uh, staple maize this year to avert hunger. This is El Nino weather patterns uh, brings poor rains and affects crops in the southern African nation. Last year, the government imported only 100,000 tons as of November. Zimbabwe received less than three quarters of uh, its rainfall needs in November and December last year. And finally now to some currencies news. Egypt's central bank kept the pound at 7.73 pounds to the US dollar at its official foreign for currency auction. The pound is steady on the black market as uh, well as Egypt, which depends on imported food and energy, is facing a dollar shortage and mounting pressure to devalue the pound. The central bank has surprised markets when it strengthened the pound by 20 basis points against the dollar. Egypt's reserves have tumbled from 36 billion US dollars in 2011 to 16.4 billion dollars currently. And the country has been rationing dollars through weekly dollar auctions to banks, keeping the pound artificially strong. That's how it's looking this hour. Thank you very much, Osana. It's time for Sports News. Here's Musibu Dimakura. Today, sports fans and starting off with football news, the Uganda national team began residential training on Monday as they continue to prepare for the African Nations Championship Finals. The tournament, also known as the Chan Tournament, is played exclusively by players who are active in their local leagues. This year's edition runs from the 16th of January to the 7th of February in the Rwandan capital of Kigali. Uganda are placed in Group D alongside Zambia, Zimbabwe and Mali. Uganda Cranes will play two build-up matches against Gabon and Cameroon in Uganda before travelling to Rwanda to play their preliminary matches. Ugandan head coach Militin Stredovic. We shall uh, decide on final 23 list by the end of this week. We uh, are looking forward to have 20 field players where for each position two players will fight for. And uh, we are having three goalkeepers as a cover- coverage for the goalkeeping situation. This is a big test of character, measurement of value for this generation of the players. We are in the group of that, I want to call it so, because um, Ali is the team that has all the time teams in the group stages of the inter-club competitions in Africa. So on Football News, Football Kenya Federation will on Tuesday select a squad to represent the country at the Intergovernmental Agency Games in Djibouti set to take place from the 16th to the 27th of January. The Federation picked a provisional outfit of 39 girls and 49 boys to enter the camp at the Safaricom Kasarani Stadium, Channel Africa's Francis Motegis in Nairobi, Kenya, and filed this report. The selected team will enter a one-week camp on January 7th and depart for Djibouti on 14th of January ahead of the January 16th kickoff. 
It is the first time Kenya will be taking part in the games that include youths from IGET member countries that incorporate the Horn of Africa nations, Djibouti, Somalia, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Nile Valley region members, South Sudan and Sudan, as well as African Grey Lakes states of Kenya and Uganda. On to local football news, APSA Premiership Blog leaders and Telcom Knockout Champions Mamelodi Sundowns have returned to training for the second half of the season and head coach Pito Musimani says they have not given up on convincing Bongani Zungu to stay with the team. Newly placed Portuguese side Victoria de Gromes tried hard in August last year to buy Zungu from Sundowns for 358,000 US dollars in vain. Musimani is not convinced that this would be the right team for the 23 year old. If you can check the team that Zungu wants to go to, they can be relegated. Eh? Which team? Uh, yeah, they can be relegated. I'm not saying they are going to be relegated. I said they can be. Last year they had a decent run. They finished number five. But it's a different story this year. Well, I don't want to say where he must go because uh, the agent is there for him. But uh, I said to him, and I will still say, he needs one more year. The thing is, when you say he needs one more season, it doesn't look, doesn't sound nice outside. Like, ah, the coach wants to, yeah, yeah. to keep the boy here, yeah, mustn't go to Europe. And I told, I told Zungu, I said, I played in Europe. Why should I want you to go to Europe? So you must go to Europe. Let's go play. South African top-ranked wheelchair tennis players Hotato Monjani, Evans Mariba and quad ace Lucas Itola have jetted off to Australia for four major season-opening international tennis tournaments, Queensland Open, the Sydney Open, the Melbourne Open as well as the Australian Open Grand Slam. Monjani and Mariba will be hoping for glory at the Queensland Open and International Tennis Federation Level 2 event and part of the wheelchair tennis tour to be staged from the 7th to the 10th of January. The two grabbed the seasoning opening event event last year in Brisbane, Australia, where they clinched both the men's and the women's single titles. And finally, in cricket news, South Africa remained solid on day four of the second test against England. Hashim Amna declared at 627 for the loss of seven wickets, still trailing England by two runs. The highlight of the South African innings was Temba Bavuma reaching his maiden test 100 in front of his home crowd, as well as Chris Morris reaching his maiden half-century in a memorable innings. While England is at the crease, are currently at 11 runs for the loss of no wickets, um, currently leading South Africa by 13 runs. While those are your sports news at the Sawa, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest.
Right, let's recap our top stories. Three people were injured on Monday in violent clashes in the Burundi capital, Bujumbura. The new head of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has started work at the agency's headquarters in Geneva. And that's all we have for you from myself as Pumele Lezondi, producer Lebo Munamoholu, technical producer Catherine Malika. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, remember that you can find us in social media. We are on Channel Africa One. On Twitter, it's Channel Africa One. On Twitter, if you want to email us, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. From me and the rest of the team, Tim, goodbye.